0: Good afternoon, everyone, whether you're listening live or recorded. Welcome to the BTOG Essential Update uh, with a surgical bent uh, for this multi-professional audience. And uh, Next slide, please. I can reassure you that the sponsorship to BTOG is entirely independent of, of, of the, the, the content, who, whoever is uh, uh, sponsoring the event. Next slide, please. And I welcome on behalf of BTOG two important uh, people in the organisation, Don McKinley and Gina Stevens, with their contact details here. Um, Contact them if you have any problems this evening with IT issues, and certainly with BTOG-related matters out with this meeting. Next slide, thanks. In terms of um, submitting questions, this is uh, a live event. Please use the uh, control panel um, asking questions on the chat function, and we will deal with this at the end there will be a certificate of attendance will be contingent on feeding and uh, feeding back some um, positive um, comments and you can indeed access this archive for up to four weeks after the end of the uh, presentation next slide thanks the agenda we've got three uh, eminent uh, thoracic surgeons and um, talking about their aspects um, we thought it was quite important to keep up to date uh, with advances in surgical practice and management. And the first of these is uh, Professor Eric Lim from the Brompton and Herefield, talking about the Violet study, a really important uh, landmark study that shows that surgeons can also do randomized controlled trials. And this shows the the great amount of cooperation uh, that can happen to allow this to recruit ahead of target. Eric, please proceed.
1: Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you for the kind invitation to BTOC to speak today. I'm talking about Violet, which is a randomized control trial of keyhole versus open surgery for lung cancer. Here are some of my disclosures. Many of you may have may have heard of Violet as a UK parallel multi-center superiority group design randomized control trial where the surgeons in the UK compared keyhole versus open surgery for lung cancer. The study protocol has already been published in the BMJ Open, and you may wish to refer to it for uh, uh, more or greater details. But in summary, we recruited patients more than 16 years old with, uh, with known or suspected lung cancer, clinical stage T1 to 3, clin- uh, N0 to 1, or M0, with disease considered suitable for both fats and open lobectomy, and randomized them in a one-to-one fashion Uh, stratified by by centre and minimised by surgeon. So each individual surgeon gets to do the same number of open and keyhole operations. The uh, definition of VAT and open are uh, conventionally defined according to CALGB criteria and lymph node dissection was standardised in both groups according to IASLC stipulations. After the operation was done, dressings were placed across the wound so that patients and assessors could not uh, decide or know if the operation was done keyhole or open by looking at the scars. And in fact, they were actually tested and asked if they knew or could guess which incision they had. And suffice to say that in the in-hospital setting, uh, it was 50%, which means that it is no better than chance for patients to guess whether that keyhole or open surgery. Finally, is a tremendous study with randomized over 503 patients and we randomized uh, four months ahead of schedule uh, thanks to the thoracic surgical uh, uh, thoracic surgical community in the UK. And I believe that people always ask me, what's the success of Violet? And the answer is because we were friends. The participating surgeons knew each other very well. We had a very good rapport. And therefore, when the time comes, uh, the need to randomize, we could write each other a WhatsApp chat group uh, and have informal encouragement to actually improve randomization. In total, we screened over 2000 patients for entry Randomized 503, 256 to open surgery, 247 to VATS. And as you can imagine from a trial this size, the baseline characteristics will very well match between the two groups. With regards to the keyhole operations, the majority were done using three ports, and that's 58%. And the second most common incision was one port at 20%. For thoracotomy, uh, I thought that the UK standard was postilateral, but that only happened in 80% and anterior thoracotomy was conducted in 20%. For every surgical study, there needs to be some quality assurance and the benign reception rate, despite known or suspected cancer, was very respectable at 1.2% with an in-hospital mortality of 1.4%. Conversion from keel to open surgery was 5.7% when defined by allocation to VATs and 6.4% when defined as attempted VATs lobectomy. The difference is if you were allocated to bats and had a biopsy to confirm cancer some of them were not cancer and therefore you closed and hence a more discerning definition for attempted to me. on the whole the number of curve conversions were very small 14 uh, out of the 246 randomized and the two main reasons were adhesions and bleeding the in-hospital results suggested that Patients who randomized to VATS had a one point lower visual analog score in terms of pain on post-operative day two. Now, pain is a difficult outcome to evaluate because it's not an independent outcome. It is influenced by the amount of analgesics you have. And when we accounted for each and every analgesic a patient received, we found that the VATS lobectomy patients uh, had one point less pain despite receiving 10% less analgesics confirming that a keyhole operation is in fact uh, less painful. We prospectively defined all the key complications that we wanted to track. And to my surprise, we found that patients who were randomized to VATs had a 26% reduction in hospital complications. Now, there were two complications that were noted to be higher in the VATs arm, neither of which was statistically significant but thought to mention uh, for completeness. One of them was intraoperative bleeding at 4.7% for bats and 0.8% for open, and one was persist- persistent air leak, defined as the need to go home on high leak back, which is 15% for bats and 8% for open. The serious adverse events were similar in both arms of the study. We found that the median length of stay was one day shorter with bats and a median of four versus five for open surgery, and that was considered to be highly statistically significant. With regards to oncologic safety and efficacy, the number of lymph nodes harvested in both arms was the same, lymph node stations, which was 5, and the median number of mediastinal lymph node stations harvested was the same at 3. Some consider upstaging of the lymph nodes from clinical N0 to 1 to pathologic N2 a more discriminating feature of the quality of lymph node dissection and we're pleased to report it was 6.2 in bats and 4.8% for open complete R0 section was the same in both arms, approximately 97%. Our primary outcome was physical function at five weeks, and we found a statistically significant improvement of approximately 4.6 points in terms of a physical function scale at five weeks. Physical function is a really difficult uh, outcome to interpret. Suffice to say that it's a score from 0 to 10. So 4.6 actually represents 4.6% difference between the two groups. And one uh, might ask, well, well, that physical function is quite small. The difference it's because physical function is a function of time. It's not the same at each time point. And whilst at five weeks, you get approximately 4.6% difference at uh, two weeks, the difference was closer to 13%. So the uh, closer the time of surgery, obviously the greater the difference in terms of physical function. Pain, no matter how you measured it, whether it's by prolonged incision pain or using the visual analog scale or um, pain scores on EORTC-QRQC30, was consistently lower and in favor of VATS. Procedural safety post-discharge, uh, with regards to serious adverse events, it was found to be 30% in the VATS arm and 37% in the open surgery arm. The causes for readmissions and death, readmissions are given in the table on the left, and the cause and reasons for death were given in the table on the right. The principal causes for readmissions were infections and medical procedures, and the principal cause of death was disease progression. With regards to adjuvant treatment, prior to Violet, there was an impression that if you had keyhole surgery, there was a greater uptake to adjuvant chemo in a shorter span of time. We did not find that to be the case, but with Violet in a randomized control trial setting, underscoring the importance of the randomized control trial design, we found that the uptake of chemotherapy was the same and quite poor, in fact, in both arms of those who were eligible, around 50% actually accepted chemotherapy in the BATS and open arms itself. With regards to recurrence and new cancer, there were 18 uh, recurrent and new cancers in the BATS arm and 21 in the open. Uh, the majority of which uh, tended to be lung, uh, which centered around uh, local local regional recurrence uh, uh, as opposed to distant uh, recurrence. With regards to oncologic uh, quality in terms of survival, there was no difference in overall survival nor disease-free survival. Having said that, there were many non-randomized studies prior to Violet suggesting that keyhole surgery had a greater impact on overall survival and i never thought that would be the case please note that the hazard ratios for survival is 0.67 uh, and progression-free survival was 0.73 both in favor of vats but we were not powered to assess this outcome and we will be pulling the actual five randomized trials today to be able to better address this uh, question hopefully in the near future for all the quality of life scores it was either no different or in favor of vats there was no situation in which thoracotomy had a more favorable outcome. And that was quite surprising, given that there were over 43 measures which were actually estimated for our patients. In total, due to hospital readmissions, complications, so on and so forth, we found that the cost of that were in fact much less than the cost of open surgery. This is usually quantified in an incremental cost effectiveness ratio which is derived by dividing the total cost up to one year uh, against each quality of life achieved. And normally it's associated with an expense uh, to quantify for each improvement in quality of life. For Violet, it shows that patients who received VATs as an access saved the country 46,000 per quality associated life year, not cost of the country, saved the country 46,000. And I think that's one of the most incredible findings that we have so far. So in conclusion, fast lobectomy is associated with less pain, significantly lower total complications, shorter length of stay, and this was achieved without any compromise to procedural oncologic outcomes or serious adverse events. Superior recovery continued after discharge with improved physical function and vast majority of secondary quality of life measures up to one year. Less complications, less readmissions continue to be observed all the way up to one year without any difference in recurrence, disease-free and overall survival, leading us to conclude that fax lobectomy is more effective and less costly compared to thoracotomy. I alone did not do Violet. Violet was the um, child of the labour of many, many people from around the country, and as well as uh, the many patients who very generously consented to give up uh, you know uh, and to give up their personal choice to allow us to randomize them into violet. and i really want to thank the sites the investigators and especially the patients Violet was eventually published in the new england journal evidence uh, and has achieved very high impact with a lot of favorable reviews which leads me to thank everyone who took part in the trial the Organizers for the for inviting me today, and for your kind attention uh, for my presentation. Thank you very much,
0: Eric. Thank you very much for that very clear, concise, and uh, very timely um, description of violet. As I said at the beginning, we'll take panel discussions at the end. So I'm delighted to uh, introduce the next speaker, uh, Mr. Babu Naidu from now um, Queen Elizabeth uh, Hospitals in Birmingham, ex hartlands talking about a very topical thing in cancer in general uh, pre optimization and prehabilitation for lung cancer. Thank you, Babu.
2: Thanks, Alan, for the opportunity to present a uh, subject which I'm really very passionate about, uh, and that's prehabilitation. And <clears throat> we know prehabilitation forms part of the optimal lung cancer pathway, and that we need to try and implement it as early as possible. And what I'm going to do is to present <clears throat> a brief summary on the emerging evidence around it. And there's been a huge explosion in the number of publications, as you can see here. Then I'm going to tell you about a bit about the difficulties, actually, delivering it currently, and then some of the new digital solutions that would potentially be helpful. But first I show you this picture of uh, a colleague and a friend, Paula Agostini, for two reasons. The first is that for the last decade, she's been publishing work on risk factors for complications, modifiable risk factors, namely COPD, exercise capacity, lung function, smoking status. And that's of course very relevant to our talk today. The second reason I show you this picture, which is taken about a month ago, which is the base camp of Everest, is really to bring to your attention that actually performing lung resection surgery is rather like climbing Everest. Now, when you climb Everest, you undergo a a sort of prehabilitation program. So similarly, should we not be doing this for our patients? So when I talk to my registrars about whether they address the issue of prehab with a patient that they've just consented for lung cancer surgery, they always say to me, well, yeah, yes, boss, I've done it. I've told the patient, go and walk more, eat healthy and stop smoking. But of course, prehabilitation is a lot more than that. It's a multidisciplinary approach where you make an assessment of the patient, their baseline, their risk factors. You then personalize a program for them and then you measure the impact of that as it goes along. And of course, it always has physical activity in it but depending on your assessment, includes a number of other interventions. As mentioned, there's been an explosion in the number of publications uh, around um, prehabilitation. And this is a a good review published published last year in Thorax, which looks at the 14 randomized controlled trials and really shows that um, overall and major post-op complications Uh, are severely impacted by prehabilitation. And if you look at the relative risk, it's on par with minimally invasive surgery. But not only that, there's an improvement in exercise capacity. There's an improvement in quality of life and lung function. The second thing is that in a subgroup analysis, they showed that the shorter, more intense uh, programs had a more reliable effect on length of stay and complications and longer programs had more of an impact on exercise capacity. The current version of our guidelines on enhanced recovery recommend prehabilitation in those patients only with borderline lung function. But perhaps in the next iteration, we might be thinking about applying prehab for all patients, but perhaps slightly longer in those who are borderline. What about delivery? Well, prior to COVID, we conducted a national survey of enhanced recovery and some of the barriers that were there were around time, time to surgery, staffing, having a team that had consistency of information. And of course, following COVID, most badly affected by Uh, by by, uh, services that are affected were rehabilitation services. Uh, In our own department, where we were quite active in prehab, uh, during this period we've had very little. And when we conducted a survey of this uh, last year, uh, you can see that's a a national picture. So are are there any solutions to this? Well, um, digital prehabilitation is a potential and we developed uh, an app-based COPD pulmonary rehab program, and we delivered it in a group of patients, uh, and we showed that it was feasible to do so, even in those patients uh, who were elderly and technology naive. And we were able to deliver, on average, around three weeks, and this was associated with a 100-metre increase in their shuttle walk. The outcomes, the post-op outcomes, are are comparable to uh, a contemporaneous conventional pulmonary rehab group. And of course, it was much cheaper. But who better to tell you about this than the patient? Um, in the second iteration of, of the Fit for Surgery, our team, uh, which consists of a younger looking surgeon, uh, but also patients, uh, dietitians, rehab physios, thoracic surgery physios, lifestyle behavior change experts sports psychologists health psychologists and researchers the team has now developed the app further uh, into a hybrid app which can be used on multiple devices there's a lot more personalization we're using a heart rate monitor to give uh, biofeedback we've embedded motivational theories such as goal setting into it we've also included outcome measures so patient reported outcome measures of quality of life, uh, a sit to stand test, and we've also incorporated the nutritional uh, assessment and intervention. So using structured exercise, um, as an example, we make an assessment using a, a fit test, which is done within the app. The patients then can select the exercises uh, based on their preferences some guidance is given based on their fit test and then as they perform the exercise they record their rate of perceived exertion or the borg scale and based on that the app then makes recommendations either to increase or decrease the amount of exercise they perform and then they can see this in a weekly um uh, a weekly chart i mentioned the nutritional triage which we do within the app so there's a patient generated subjective global assessment tool which triages patients into low risk medium risk and high risk and it, in the low risk they just get the information through the app through the medium they receive high calorie oral nutritional supplements and high risk they get to see a dietitian. and finally there's a lot more personalization with the app so here's one example uh, you can see that if a patient marks themselves as breathless, then information on how to manage breathlessness is displayed
3: to them. I said, yes, what is it? And he said, we're doing a project, rehabilitation uh, exercises um, for people having lung surgery. Would you be interested in taking part? And I said, yes, I would. I found the app. Extremely easy to use.
2: I had very, very good explanation um, by the researchers who showed me what I needed to do, how to do it, and
3: all the rest of it. Switch it on, and you've got all the, the exercises there by the side of you. And my fail good factor I shot up at right knots far better than last time. So the recovery rate has been much, much quicker and much, much better and you know how well you're doing and it it just spurs you on. It's extremely easy to use. But certainly having that uh, and
2: and getting as fit as I was able to helped me prepare certainly for the operation and get ready
3: for that. My recovery from that has been amazing. Um, The pain has been absolutely nothing like the first lung operation. But it was extremely easy. If I can do it, anybody can do it. Each day you can see your oxygen and your heartbeat and it tells you how you're doing against the last time and it's really, 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 really good.
2: It came as a, a, as a surprise how simple and straightforward it all was. I think that, that
3: helped me enormously um, for, for two reasons, uh, both both um, uh, physically and, and also psychologically. I thought it was good. It was demonstrating that old guys can still do exercises, which is good. I
4: think that's a very
2: powerful message. Um, and based on, on the feasibility study, the NIHR have funded us to do a large multi-center trial. Um, and thanks to the success of Eric and, and co, uh, we have now got funding to do this 900-patient study of from 20 lung cancer surgery centers, recruiting two to three patients uh, a month for a couple of years. Um, So if you are interested in uh, your centre being part of this, uh, please do drop us a line. But to summarise, prehabilitation is an essential part of the lung cancer pathway. Uh, It is for all patients and needs to be tailored. There are issues with delivery. Digital solutions are a potential problem uh, as a potential solution. Thank you very much.
0: Babu, excuse me, thank you very much uh, for that. Um, We have also started a a prehab programme, but we're still very keen to uh, get involved in fit for surgery to to randomise our patients. So Babu's talked about um, optimising our patients before surgery, and now uh, Matthew Thomas, one of my recently appointed colleagues a couple of years ago at the Golden Jubilee in the west of Scotland, um, having spent some time in the Factory in Shanghai uh, is going to talk about um, it's be segmentectomy as a possible alternative for the management of primary lung cancer. Thank you.
4: Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Alan, for the introduction, and thank you, BTOG, for allowing me to talk to you all about segmentectomy for early stage lung cancers. As you heard, I'm Matthew Thomas, I'm a thoracic surgeon at the Jubilee, and I don't have any conflicts of interest. So Um, I thought I'd begin with the basics, Um, the definitions. So a bronchopulmonary segment, by definition, is an anatomical portion of the lung with its own segmental bronchus and vessels. And the vessels include pulmonary arteries, bronchial arteries, pulmonary veins, and lymphatics. Next to it is this picture of uh, the nomenclature we use. And I think it's important that everyone gets used to this nomenclature. Because as surgeons, we tend to mark the specimens now, saying RB6, uh, and, and send it to the pathologists, and they get—they obviously are getting used to the nomenclature, and the same nomenclature is used uh, in the MDTs as well. So I think it's worth everyone gets used to this, and you can look at it later on in the slides. Um, so. Um, for any surgery to be useful and uh, uh, be worthwhile, there there should always be an anatomical and physiological basis for this. So, if we look at this picture, it shows how tumors spread. Now, tumors spread, as we know, along the windpipe uh, and along um, uh, the blood vessels, which are the arteries um, and the veins and the lymphatics. Now, whilst the Arteries and the uh, the airway are in the center of a segment. From this picture, you'll see that the that the veins and the lymphatics actually run in the intersegmental plane, and that's important to understand, because this is what a wedge resection looks like. In a wedge resection, you would cut away the tumor with the surrounding parenchyma. You will probably take away some of the airway and the arterial spread, but you won't take away uh, the spread through the lymphatics or through the venous supply. And for that, a segmentectomy uh, was designed. A segmentectomy, in a segmentectomy, we cut along the intersegmental planes. So let no one tell you that that a segmentectomy is a glorified wedge. There's a big difference. So, this is the main physiological basis and high, uh, or physiological hypothesis for how a segmentectomy works. Now, in, in, uh, let's take the simple example. I wish I could show you using a cursor, but here is a nodule in the lingular segment of the left upper lobe. Uh, you might be able to see some uh, airways in the area. The, uh, the airway you see directly in line with the nodule is the inferior lingular segmental bronchus, and the one above it, the superior. The airway above it is uh, the anterior segmental bronchus. So post lingulectomy this is a picture on the right-hand side which shows what the um, um, uh, uh, what, what the post-operative area looks like, and you can see the stumps quite clearly, B4, B5 marking the bronchial stump uh, the arterial stumps marked as a4 and a5 and uh, you can see from here that the uh, the parenchymal stapling has occurred um, along uh, the intersegmental plane as you can see the as you can see the vein to the anterior segment clearly these are some pictures of uh, um, nodules where which are well contained within a segment. So on the left we have a nodule in the posterior segment of the upper lobe and on the right you have a nodule contained in the superior segment of the right lower lobe and both of these can be resected by um, uh, by performing a single segment segmentectomy and this is in contrast to Uh, the pictures that I'm showing you now. So in the previous ones, you would easily get two centimeter parenchymal margins. Whereas if you look at the picture on the left, uh, the nodule straddles two segments. It straddles the apical and the posterior segmental uh, areas of the right upper lobe. Uh, And therefore, I went ahead and did a a double segmentectomy. Similarly, on the, on the right-hand side, that particular nodule in the left upper lobe straddles the apical and posterior segments. So, you would have to design your segmentectomy based on uh, ensuring that you've got enough parenchymal margins. And if you think the parenchymal margins are spilling over into another segment, consider a double segmentectomy. Now, those were relatively easy to do, but this one is complicated. This is a, a nodule that's in the right lower lobe, and it's tra- and it sits um, between the lateral and posterior segments of the right lower lobe. Any segmentectomy in the lower lobe of uh, either lung is a little bit more challenging and technically difficult, but still achievable. So, we've seen the, uh, the physiological hypothesis of how segmentectomy Uh, can work. We've seen what we can achieve uh, in in terms of the resections. But as a surgeon, the next few questions which I would ask myself is, okay, I know know, uh, why I can do it, but how should I do it? I mean, how much should I resect? Where did these two centimeter margins come from? Is there any evidence for it? So I'll present that to you. And then after that, What are the outcomes of segmentectomy? I mean, we are doing lobectomies. Is segmentectomy as good as a lobectomy? What are the outcomes? And then finally, we'll go through some unique scenarios. So um, the evidence we have is that um, we should be, uh, we could be doing segmentectomy for nodules, which are lesser than or equal to two centimeters. Uh, And we should ensure that they have, uh, that, that we should ensure that um, they are not invading the pleura, because if it does invade the pleura, uh, tumor could spread through subpleural lymphatics. And um, finally, as I said earlier, you you would want to design your segmentectomy such that you have two centimeter parenchymal margins. Now. To get the to the intersegmental plane, you could do that in various ways. I'm sure the surgeons in the group would have various ideas, but these are the two that I have been trained and have used. So on the left, you've got um, uh, um, parenchymal marking using indocyanine green, uh, and um, you would basically uh, divide the vascular supply to the segment concerned, inject indocyanine green, and um, Uh, the segment that uh, the areas of the lung that are perfused will light up green, the others don't. And you can see in the picture the puckered area and you can see uh, the arrows showing uh, that you've got enough margins to resect that segment. Uh, On the right is something that I was previously trained on and I still use it, uh, is the inflation-deflation line and inflation-deflation technique. Here you could either selectively intubate the segmental bronchus and blow it up or uh, you could divide the bronchus and then inflate the rest of the lung and then l- allow it to passively deflate and obviously air would have entered even the um, uh, segment which did not have a bronchus through the pores of corn, but it would not deflate as quickly and you're left with a inflated area which you could mark with your cautery and resect. So uh, um, so where did these? Uh, so so um, here we've got Sutani's uh, uh, paper in 2019, which was uh, put up in the Annals, and uh, he looked at uh, low and high risk chances of recurrence, and he found that um, uh, if if the nodules were lesser than or equal to two centimeters, uh, I, I mean, uh, and and if parenchymal margins were adequate, uh, then the recurrence rate was low. Uh, of importance is the fact that if the nodules were on the pleura and had pleural invasion, then the chances of local recurrence were much higher at 28 percent. So that's an important point to consider. Now the next question is uh, why? Uh, what are the outcomes of segmentectomy? Thankfully this year we had uh, a large multi-centered trial called the JCOG0802, uh, which was a randomized control trial designed to investigate if segmentectomy was uh, not inferior to a lobectomy. So what is this trial? Well, uh, in this large trial, they had 1,106 patients. And and they recruited everyone with a nodule which was lesser than or equal to 2 centimeters and with every one of them having a CT ratio more than 0.5. A CT ratio basically stands for consolidation tumor ratio. And what's that in simple English? Well if you look at a lesion uh, which is say for example a mixed GGO, the consolidated part is basically the solid bit and the tumor is the general abnormal area. So all of these had a uh, solid component which was more than 50%. But this we, we might grumble and say that our lesions are primarily solid. Well, 50% of the 1100 had a CT ratio of one, which means at least 500 patients had solid lesions. So it might be applicable to us. Uh, it is applicable to us. Uh, they, followed the, they followed up the patients for 7.3 years as their median follow-up. Some of the follow-ups went up to 10 years. And during the surgery, Uh, They inspected the N1 nodes, and if the N1 nodes looked abnormal, they did a frozen section, and if it came back positive, they converted to a lobectomy. So the results from this trial were they had 550-odd patients in the lobectomy and segmentectomy arms, and the five-year overall survival was superior in the segmentectomy arm. The five-year relapse-free survival was about the same. The local recurrence was higher, twice as high in the segmentectomy arm. So even though they had higher local recurrence, they didn't, they they actually continued to survive, which meant uh, that the deaths in the lobectomy group were due to other causes. Both lobectomy and segmentectomy had about 25 odd percent uh, chances of having grade 2 or more complications uh, when uh, when when checked upon at 30 days. Um, now from a segmentectomy perspective, um, you would have hoped that you preserve a lot of parenchyma and the final FEV1 would be uh, much higher, but then this study shows that at 12 months when they evaluated the FEV1, the segmentectomy group had a improvement or a gain in FEV1 of only about 3.5 percent, which was um, unexpectedly a bit low. Uh, Here are the survival curves. Um, The red line is the segmentectomy line and the blue one is the lobectomy and you can see that those curves go on all the way till 10 years and uh, consistently the segmentectomy um, uh, has got a better survival. The relapse free survival, as I indicated in the numbers before, are roughly the same. So, what did they conclude? Uh, well, they concluded that for all stage 1A non small cell lung cancers who underwent a segmentectomy, uh, those patients can expect a five year survival, which is of greater than or equal to 90%. Uh, And the other conclusion they came to was that based on this uh, better survival, the recommendation, the JCOG group recommend that segment tech should be um, the standard surgical procedure for these very specific lesions. Now, if we have the same patient genetics and follow the same surgical aims, we would have exactly the same results. But in our country, do we have the exact same patients? Well, we have more fibrotic lungs, uh, and they were excluded in this trial. Um, having worked uh, in in the east, in, in Shanghai, um, I can tell you that their patients' fissures are are much better. They occasionally have uh, segmental fissures, uh, whereas over here we seem uh, we we tend, or wherever I've gone. Uh, the fissures seem to be more grade three and grade four, so it, it makes it more technically difficult. Nevertheless, we persevere and and do a segmentectomy. Now, with regards to N1, this is um, uh, this is a, a complicated question, uh, whether we should be converting to a lobectomy if we find that on a f- and whether we should be doing a frozen section because. Is it the same as systemic dissemination? I mean, for a lobectomy, if you had N1 disease, would it be just give adjuvant? Um, The next question is about pleural invasion. Um, uh, We've seen that there is a higher recurrence rate uh, if if pleura is invaded, so should we go back and do a lobectomy? Um, What do we do for recurrences? Uh, I can tell you in the trial, uh, a quarter of the patients underwent further surgery. A quarter of them had radiotherapy and about half of them had uh, chemotherapy. Um, so uh, the question remains, what should we do? Uh, and the follow-up plan in the trial, well, they uh, they had CT scans every six months for the first two years. And following that up to year five, uh, they scanned the patients once a year. Um, they found that uh, about um, uh, that, that most of the recurrences tended to occur at two and a half years. Now, moving on to our current trends uh, in, in the segmentectomy world. Uh, well, screening is uh, is becoming more frequent. It's it's then very in in a, a lot of places in England. Um, and and we are diagnosing more and more smaller lesions so I think uh, we will have more patients who are eligible for a segmentectomy. Now some of these patients would have nodules in in structurally confusing bits of the lung uh, or might require complex segmentectomies. Uh, Few of us are able to three-dimensionally map out a CT in our brain, but most of us uh, or or, or at least um, some of us may not be able to, are not blessed with that ability. So um, there are lots of um, virtual planning softwares out there uh, which might be able to help, Uh, so either we should use that or get trained in how better to read a CT scan. as a competitor, there are uh, oncological trials for uh, com- coming up soon, I think, for stage one. Uh, so, uh, but the message is quite clear: uh, we have a 90% more than 90% survival if we do a segmentectomy. In conclusion, um, segmentectomy seems superior to lobectomy for the right patient cohort. If we adhere to the oncological principles, uh, then we should get good results. We've looked at those debatable issues in the previous slides. And in 2024, the CalGB trial will come out, which might attest um, uh, the role of segmentectomy. Uh, Thank you. That that, uh, ends my presentation and thank you to BTog.
0: Matthew, thank you very much uh, for that real good talk through segmentectomy, which clearly with earlier stage diagnosis uh, through uh, screening or other means is going to form part of the future, particularly with the the JCOG study. I have a couple of questions already on the chat. I would encourage those who are um, taking part in this live to pop in. So the first of these, Matthew, you've already alluded to, Um, Do you routinely use frozen section on your N1 nodes? You talked about what to do when you do have N1 nodes. Do you routinely use frozen section?
4: So, um, I wouldn't consider myself the UK expert on this. So this is my personal view and no, I don't. I I, I would just resect it and, and when the patient comes to MDT, I would have an MDT discussion.
0: Okay, and uh, since we both work in the same institution, I can speak on behalf of the pathologists that it's not that they're in any way work shy, but they are very anxious about using doing frozen section blocks on relatively s- small volume disease. I'd prefer to look at them in paraffins. I don't know if anyone else out there has a different different so view.
1: Can I, can I also add to that? So the, the Royal Brompton Hospital has had a legacy and tradition of doing routine intraoperative frozen sections with Peter Goldstraw, George Ladas, and they would do it routinely and we have a card and they would collate about 8, 9, 10 stations for the card to look for N1 disease. However, I've not inherited that practice because the presence of N1 disease for me does not influence my choice of extent of resection. And certainly the influence for N1 disease on resection extent is a very uh, unique to Japanese practice. And from my point of view, if you have n1 disease and refuse to do a lobectomy and do a segmentectomy then from an oncologic basis how does that apply when you have hyler disease or interlobar positive would you then do a bilobectomy and then if you go on even further and therefore if you have n2 disease would you do a pneumonectomy so if the um, increasing transition or increasing the extent of resection doesn't hold i personally uh, question the value uh, unless, of course, you cannot achieve R0, but the actual value for a otherwise N1 positive that you can remove or is removed with the anatomic specimen for a segmentectomy.
4: Eric, I agree. And, and this is why I think uh, my personal view is as soon as the nodes are invaded, it is systemic disease. And that's why chemotherapy in an in, in adjuvant setting is important.
0: Thank, thank you both. Uh, Babu, can I ask for some input from you personally and or on behalf of your colleagues in Birmingham? What you?
2: Yeah, I mean, we don't have a very um, strong history of performing segments. Uh, we usually reserve them for those patients who are borderline. Um, we're having to re-evaluate what we do based on this study, uh, so it's a work in progress. Um, but for us, obviously, it's the small tumours and those who are not fit, who are not fit uh, for larger resections that we would usually reserve this for. Okay, thank you. The other question: ask, ask
1: just,
2: Well, that's a very good question, <laughs> <laughs> because really, there's, there may not be a huge difference between the two. Um, you know, in terms of preservation of lung function, I, I don't know whether it makes us feel better. Is that why we used to do it? Um, but um, you know i do think that uh, you know when we are our practice is changing isn't it we're, we're seeing smaller and smaller tumors lung cancer screening is coming um so our, our our work and of course we're seeing a lot more of this ground glass and eric you're going to produce some guidance on us as to what to do with that as well so i think you know in in that context segments are going to be more important and i think as a surgical body we need to embrace that
0: Thank you very much, all. Can I just go on to the next question, also directed towards Matthew and sort of touching um, on what's already been said. So Matthew and ultimately the other two, are you concerned that performing a segmentectomy leads to twice the rate of local regional recurrence for a mere 3% improvement in both
4: survival and lung function? My concern well these are these are statistics and numbers yeah we've got got to believe them but um, my personal experience is um, I haven't seen many recurrences after uh, performing a segmentectomy here.
0: Um, And can I just say that the, the the value of that question is I've had another one from the audience comment from audience we are worried about the twice incidence of recurrence in local regional things.
4: But then as we go on to look at their study, uh, most of uh, the deaths occurred due to um, some non-cancerous reasons. Uh, Certainly the patients were fitter uh, after a segmentectomy and uh, they did get uh, additional treatment if there were relapses.
0: So if I can paraphrase your answer on behalf of the questioner, no you're not worried about that imbalance is that fair i think you feel so, yeah. that That's you feel That's that fair. overall survival and lung function is worth paying that in twice the rate of local regional recurrence
4: so the study wasn't pow- the study wasn't powered enough i mean they were expecting they were expecting to look uh, to to get at least a 10% improvement in fev1 uh, and and uh, they have i think claimed in their study that it wasn't powered enough to prove that
0: Thank you. Can I be uh, mischievous and ask you a question, Matthew, if it weren't for the advent of Sabre, and although everything we do is patient focused, absolutely for best patient outcome, would thoracic surgeons be doing segmentectomy or exploring it if it weren't for the advent of Sabre? Would we still be doing lobectomy?
4: We've been doing segmentectomies for a long time, or segmentectomies have been around uh, since the late 1990s. It just became popular off late. Um, The reasons to do a segmentectomy are both diagnostic and therapeutic. Uh, Sabre is, I mean, I wouldn't say always, but, uh, is often given without any diagnosis by doing a segmentectomy you get enough material to look for other genetic markers and and uh, you know provide provide targeted treatment if required um, since we we've started evaluating the outcomes of segmentectomy it's proven that uh, the, uh, the that they lo- uh, that the survival is more than 90% at 5 years i don't think SABRE has those kind of outcomes so yes, I would do a segmentectomy. Okay,
0: and I'm looking to uh, someone to rebut that argument out there in the audience. If you could use the chat function, if you don't mind. Eric, can I, I turn to you? And yeah, the, I would say that
1: this is it's an interesting view on JCOG because if you look at LCSG832, the incidence of local recurrence was twice higher with segmentectomy. And if you calculate JCOG, actually it's 1.9, the risk of recurrence, and um, with a um, JCOG was 2.0 so in fact the risk of recurrence didn't change between LCSG832 and JCOG. Now with LCSG832 based on a twice higher recurrence lobectomy was declared as the extent of choice for resection so what's changed with JCOG? Okay.
0: May I ask you Eric an equally mischievous question it took approximately 25 years, correct me if I'm wrong, to do the VATS lobectomy versus open lobectomy. Where are we with VATS versus RATS lobectomy? So that's
1: a that's a huge question. That's a that's an important question. So I think this is a really important question to be uh, actually to be serious. Um, so VATS and open is a form of access. Robotics and VATS use the same access, which is. Uh, thoracoscopic ports and the benefits is what can be done inside the body with a 360 articulation with robotic arms versus what can be done using standard thoracoscopic instruments. So the value of the the robotic surgery needs to be quantified. Uh, um, Without evidence of better clinical outcomes, you need to be able to wonder if it's okay to spend 2 million on a robot and an additional few thousand per operation. I've calculated, based on Karen Redmond's study on micro costing, because um, robotic surgery costs on average two thousand more per patient. If we uh, had, if we all did robotic surgery for all our lung cancer resections across the UK, then out of no reason, we would just cost the country, uh, you know, twenty million more per year. And how is that justified? Why are we doing that? And is it is it okay, is it right for all of us to just move into it? What, what what's the rationale? I, I don't understand.
0: Okay. Matthew, can I ask you, as someone that is now working in a quite a mature uh, robotic thoracic center, is there compared with your VATS, your your uniportal VAT segmentectomy, how does the robotic platform alter your surgical approach in segmentectomy? Forget all of a
4: Yeah, for segmentectomy, it's uh, far easier to do a segment using a robot. I mean, you don't rely on an assistant to move the camera around. You can move the camera exactly where you want. You've got very precise dissection. Uh, You can actually do a lymphadenectomy of that N1 node, or uh, you can do extremely good lymphadenectomy. I mean, I could do it with VATS as well, but I can control bleeding much better with a robot and it's extremely precise i use the icg better the parenchyme the stapler seem better overall i think the robot is far superior or maybe i'm getting (laughs) very used to it um, to do a segmentectomy as compared to uniportal or even triportal vats is my personal view
0: still looking for contentious questions from the audience please in the meantime babu Can I ask you that every, certainly in Scotland and the rest of the UK, we really are into prehab for cancer care, not just prehab for surgery. How, how does your programme link in with, um, chemotherapy, oncology, immunotherapy, multimodality therapy? Do you have separate programmes or do you have one big programme?
2: That's that's an interesting question. So, uh, obviously we've had this study funded to look at lung cancer surgery. Um, But increasingly, we have a number of other specialties are working with us to evolve that for their own pathways, Uh, and that includes radiotherapy, the Sabre teams, but also colorectal, hepatobiliary and upper GI. And within these types of programmes, there are some uh, common contents, if you want, and then there are specific areas so we're in the process of mapping out the pathways for these other areas um, and actually evolving programs that are applicable to them. Um, It's a slow piece of work but um, it's ongoing. Thank you. Just received
0: a a question for Eric. Eric, do you consider it a failure if you have to perform an open lobectomy as opposed to a VATS and if so should this be a quality indicator for thoracic units?
1: Oh, great question. Um, the short answer is no, because I don't think any conversion is a failure. Um, and the reason why I say that is because we need to do what's right for the patient. And whilst we want to have a shorter length of stay, we want to have less complications, uh, so on and so forth, we want to harness all the benefits of that. But that can never override safety. If you can't do the operation safely and you need to convert, please, just convert. And also, I don't think it all overrides oncologic clearance and margin. So if you're struggling and you can't get an oncologic clearance or margin, please convert. And with regards to um, conversion rate, I think it's a reflection of two things. One is your case selection as to do you just accept small, easy cases? Uh, some uh, very famous surgeons around the world who goes around the world, maybe uh, accepts patients which are very straightforward, and so conversion rates tends to be low. But surely there are some cases where, um, you know, single pore bacteria is not possible, a 10 centimetre tumour, it won't come out of the pore. You just have to do thoracotomy right from the outset. There is no shame. I think the two principal aims for surgical operation is do it safely and get complete clearance. And with regards to the access, that secondary is the first two.
0: Oh, and I think all of us around the table would agree. Uh, but could I just ask that supplementary, should um, minimal access uh, resection rates be a quality indicator for thoracic units?
1: I personally don't think so, because it's hard to match based on those two factors, whether there's a uh, predominant case selection and a uh, lower threshold for safety. I don't think just because uh, you have a high VAT uh, rate necessarily uh, you know, equates to a better outcome, but certainly every surgeon should be competent to do a
0: vats lobectomy. I mean, 10 years ago in UK, I think the the vats resection, vats lobectomy rate was probably quite low, around about the 20% to 30% mark, and only a certain number of centres did it. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I think that vats lobectomy is offered in every thoracic centre in UK now, is that correct?
1: as far as I'm aware, because that's lobectomy now is the majority access for all lung
0: cancer resection in the UK. Okay, and certainly the the details from Doug West that we get is usually two or three years out of kilter, but I think it's probably reportedly 60 percent, but probably realistically these days a bit higher. The time is now 18.28, Uh, unless there are any other questions coming through or any comments from the panel, I will draw this to a close thanking everyone for their attention and uh, I- engagement, and thank to all the speakers for giving up their, their valuable time. Could I just end with one advert that these uh, essential updates, the next BTOG webinar is, as you can see on the screen, ASCO 2022 in an hour, which is on the 16th of, of June, and also the first BTOG face-to-face in-person meeting is on the Friday, the 8th of July and please refer to the BTOG website for further details. So, ladies, gentlemen, colleagues, friends, thank you very much and uh, have a great evening and a great weekend. Thank you very much.